So our scripture passage this evening from which I'll preach is John 14, uh, verses 15 through 31. So if you have a copy of God's word and want to turn there, John 14, and we'll begin in the middle of the chapter, verse 15 down to 31. I know the theme for this year's missions conference is taken from John 20, 21. And after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples and said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Think about that. What does it mean to be sent? Um, 2017, a YouTube video went viral. It showed this Canadian man preparing to ramp his snowmobile into a lake. And before the stunt, Larry Enticer said, I'm just going to send it. And that language, send it, became just going to send it, became this defiant pledge to perform an unlikely, inadvisable, or dangerous feat. Uh, it's used when performing a reckless stunt without regard for the potential consequences. That may be what you think of for being sent, for sending it. Actually, that language of to send it uh, probably goes back to mountain climbers in the 90s. Um, I wasn't one in the 90s, or neither am I one now. But they uh, would speak of sending it as delivering on a promise. You know, like, I'm going to climb this mountain. I, I set out to do this. I'm going to send it. I'm going to deliver on the promise I made to myself and to others. Um, as a church, we may also be uh, thinking about those kind of themes with being sent. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, We are ambassadors for Christ, Christ God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is the mission for which we're sent. This is the role all of us share, regardless of our individual callings. We are ambassadors for Christ. And as we think about this, we may feel like mountain climbers looking up at this mountain and trying to build that resolve. I'm, I'm going to send it. I'm going to follow through on my promise, no matter the cost. Or we may feel like that YouTube video, uh, getting ready to drive our snowmobile off a ramp into this reckless stunt without regard to the potential consequences. Well, it, the truth is, if you've ever participated in ministry, it's both. You know, it's reckless, it's painful, it hurts. Sometimes you think, why did I do this? What did I get myself into? Um, and it's a mountain to climb. It's a promise we make. It's, uh, it's something we're, we really don't volunteer for. It's something that Jesus says, I'm sending you. Just as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. But it's not just being sent. Actually, in the context of John 20, when Jesus appeared to the disciples after his resurrection from the dead, he says this twice. He says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. And what I want us to think through tonight in the brief time we have is what kind of peace does he send us with? What does he mean when he says, peace be with you? Because it was important for him that his, under, that his disciples understood that they're, they're being sent, yes, but they're being sent with a peace. And, and so that's what we're going to explore tonight. Look with me in John chapter 14, again, beginning in verse 15. Hear the word of the Lord. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. 
You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I'll no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word will remain with us. But God's word will remain forever. Let me pray for us. Father, you promise here in your word through Jesus that though the world cannot see Christ, we will see him. And in seeing him, we will see the Father. Father, I pray that as we sort through um, this, on some level, difficult conversation Jesus is having with his disciples, I pray that you would help us to see Christ more clearly, that you'd remind us that we are not alone, and that while we are sent on a difficult mission, and that while um, sometimes the road is long, uh, I pray that you would enable us to be encouraged tonight, that this would be a time as we study your word and as we consider your promises here, that we would be refreshed in the different tasks you've given us and the different ways that we are called to be ambassadors for Christ. Thank you that we have this conversation recorded for us, this this place where Jesus tells his disciples and tells us that we are not alone, that we have a helper, that your spirit is given to us so that we may have peace in the midst of this mission. And we pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Recent article in the Clarion Ledger is actually last week. Uh, It came out. It said this, Jackson, Mississippi ranks in the top 25 among America's loneliest cities. Jackson, Mississippi, this is the headline, ranks in the top 25 among America's loneliest cities. Um, The article was based on a Chamber of Commerce annual study uh, in which they search out the demographics and the statistics that correspond with how they measure loneliness. And it was simply this, the organization said it analyzed housing data for more than 170 cities with a population of at least 150,000 
to find America's loneliest cities and to determine loneliness, the study looked at the number of one-person households in each city. That was how it kind of came to this conclusion. How many are there of one-person households in each city? And according to the report, Jackson ranked 21st with 40.4% of 62,000 households being occupied by one person. 40% of 62,000 households were occupied by one person. Now, um, living alone doesn't necessarily equal feeling lonely. Uh, I wanna, wanna make sure we understand that because some of you live alone. You might feel, uh, say, you know, I don't feel or have the experience of being lonely at all, Jeff. You know, maybe your church home or other uh, connections. But at the same time, it's a wake-up call for us, isn't it? As far as being a church, being a ministry, to realize, well, that, that's a lot of people living alone. And that's a lot of people that at least on some level would be susceptible to, to feeling very lonely, to feeling very isolated. Um, maybe some even in this room feel like no one really checks in on them. And that can be a very scary, um, a scary feeling. If you think about that for a moment and think uh, what it calls us to as a church to move towards those who may be in need of fellowship, of connection, of just someone to check in on them, those who live on your streets, those in your neighborhoods, those in our churches, those in our families. Also, I want us to back up a moment and consider our own experience of loneliness because what the disciples were going through in the, um, this scene, this context in John chapter 14, was they were being told, Jesus was telling them for the first time very clearly in a time where they actually heard him, he said, I'm leaving. This was the upper room. This was the last meal they had with Jesus. This is the night before his crucifixion, the night of his betrayal. And Jesus says in a few different places in this section of scripture, John 13 to 17, he says things like this, where I'm going, you cannot come. In John 14, um, 30, in the passage we read, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. Speaking of Satan, speaking of the evil one. In John 15, he says, I'm going to him who sent me. And because I've said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. Um, the disciples are very lonely at this point because Jesus is saying goodbye to them. And they're sad. They are hearing this from a very close friend. If we happened to step into this room, uh, this upper room, when they were having this conversation, we would have immediately kind of realized, okay, I'm, I'm intruding. They were having a very serious, solemn conversation, and I need to step out. That, that gives you an idea of the level of, of emotion that was, was in this conversation when Jesus said, I'm leaving. And, and, and as you think about the disciples hearing Jesus say these words, I'm leaving, um, think about scenes like in John 6, where um, Jesus has just finished speaking about how anybody that follows him must eat his flesh and drink his blood. And all of us on this side of the cross and on this side of the church know that he's talking about communion. He's talking about spiritually believing in Christ. But in John chapter six, that's not what the followers are thinking. They don't understand this language. And basically a lot of them start saying, you know, this guy, this guy's crazy. We're, we're leaving. We're not following him anymore. 
And Jesus says to the disciples at this point, the 12, he says, do you want to go away as well? And listen to what they say in verse 68. They said, Lord, to whom shall we go? In other words, like where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In other words, Jesus, we're sold out for you. Where you go, we'll go. Uh, we can get through it as long as we're with you. And so now, as we kind of fast forward to the upper room, now we can get a sense for why the disciples are so um, discouraged. You know, you see here in the passage we read, uh, it says Judas, it's not Judas Iscariot, but another Judas in their group says, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? In other words, you're saying you're leaving, and how are we to be encouraged by this? Like, it's, in other words, they just see Jesus saying to them, I'm leaving. And that's all they hear. They, they can't get over that. And yet Jesus will go on to say in verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. What is it about this peace? And what is it about what Jesus is saying here that's going to keep the disciples from being alone? What is it that's going to fulfill what he says when he says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. See, the, the main part, the main aspect of the peace that Jesus gives us is that the peace that Jesus gives us comes from his presence. And his presence is, is given to us, even though he's away, even though he's no longer on this earth, through his spirit. That's how Jesus is going to follow through on this promise to be with us, to give us peace. He's going to send his spirit. He's going to send us the helper, we're told. Christ gives us his spirit so that we're not orphans and so that we're not alone. And so that when we're sent out on this task, we're not just trying to make it up as we go. Uh, when we're sent out on this mission to be ambassadors for Christ, and as we fall on our faces sometimes, and as we fail and fail again, and as we make mistakes, and as we don't know what to say at crucial times when something needs to be said, in all those situations, we're not just wringing our hands saying, this is the best we have. We actually can say, no, Jesus has sent his spirit to indwell us, to remind us that he himself is with us. That in, in a, some mysterious way that we can't understand, Jesus is closer to us now in this room tonight than when he was with the disciples in the upper room here in John 14. He is, he is that much nearer to us as his disciples now. And so that's the peace that Jesus gives us. Yes, I'm leaving, and I'll no longer talk much with you, but I'll be nearer to you then when I've, when I've gone to the cross, when I've been resurrected, when I've ascended. I will be nearer to you when I send my spirit and pour my spirit on my people. I'll be so near to you that it'll be, it'll be fitting for me to, to, to say that I will dwell inside of you, that the spirit will make his home within us. Yes, you're in enemy territory, but I will not leave you as orphans. This is the Spirit's work. And 
I want us to understand in just a few bullet points how the Spirit does that. Um, you may be thinking, okay, that's, that's, that's good, that's nice. We think about the Spirit going forth. We kind of remind ourselves the Spirit is who brings about salvation. But how in this passage do we see that? And I'm going to show us in, in four simple ways. Again, not an outline, but more like bullet points. And the first bullet point is that the Spirit draws us into a dance. The Spirit draws us into this dance of keeping and of loving. And you may think, okay, where do we get that in this passage in John 15? Look with me. There, there are about four places where I see this. And it's throughout this whole section of John 13 through 17. But just in this half chapter, John 14, we see it in four ways. First, the very first verse, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keep them, keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And then verse 24, Jesus speaking of himself, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. See, in all, all those verses, all four of them, there's this connection between keeping God's commandments, his word, keeping his word, and loving him. And what the Spirit does is the Spirit draws us back into that that dance of keeping and loving. The Spirit reminds us that this, as believers, is what we are to be doing. That, that we are to keep these things together, this keeping His Word and His commands and loving Him. And why is that important? It's because you have to keep those things together, the keeping and loving. See, if, if you don't keep the keeping of God's commands together with the loving, then you just have words, right? You just have um, affection without really purpose. You just have uh, saying one thing and doing another. If all of us just say we love God, but we don't keep his commands, then we're not, we're not really keeping our word. We're actually lying. But on the other hand, if we keep God's commands, but we don't do it with love as our, as our reason and our goal, then we become, like when I talked to the college students uh, last week about this from Revelation 2. We're going through the book of Revelation on Monday nights at our large groups on, at MC. And it says this to the church in Ephesus. Jesus says, you've left your first love. I have this against you. You've left your first love. Brothers and sisters, we can be in danger of doing all the right things as a church, as a ministry, as individuals, as families, as high schoolers, as college students, as young adults, we can do all the right things, like the church in Ephesus. If you read in Revelation 2 in the letter sent to the church in Ephesus, they were bearing up under uh, persecution. They were uh, protesting those who called themselves apostles and weren't. They, they were doing so many good things. And Jesus commends them for it. But then he says, I have this against you. You've left your first love. We have to keep the keeping of God's commands, the remembering of his words, the treasuring of the precious doctrines of the Reformed faith together with love, with remembering our first love, with remembering the basic, the most basic statement of faith. The, uh, the, the Bible loves me, this I know, uh, for the Bible tells me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We have to come back to those basic things, don't we? The things that drew us in in the first place. 
And it's the Spirit as He works in our lives that reminds us of that, that remember, if you love me, you will keep my commands. That uh, it says in verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it's him who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Notice that this is where Judas asked that question. He says, how is it that you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And it's as if Jesus just points him back to the keeping of his commands and loving. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. See, this is how the Spirit works in our lives. He enables us to keep His commands, and then He reminds us and connects our keeping of the commands with what it means to love Jesus, what it means to respond to Jesus' love to us. That's what keeping the commands is all about. It's never about living up to some standards so that then Jesus will love us. It's always about Jesus' love coming from beneath us coming from beneath our failures, coming from beneath the ways that we fall short and loving us there and then raising us up to keep his commandments. That's what the spirit does in our life. And, and the way that he draws us into this keeping and loving is that he's our counselor. He's our advocate, we're told. That, that word that it says, I'll send to you a helper, it's in two places in this passage we read. That word can be translated uh, advocate or counselor. In other words, it's kind of a picture of a courtroom where he speaks on our behalf. This is the way, way Sinclair Ferguson puts it. He said, back in this day, in Jesus' day, if you need somebody to speak up for you before the judges, you asked a close friend, a counselor, whose testimony could be trusted because he knew you intimately. You might ask your longest standing friend, will you help me be my paraclete, my counselor, my, my advocate? Will you serve as my counselor? I'm in trouble and I need you to speak for me and to defend me. And so the counselor is the one who comes in our lives, the spirit comes in our lives and he knows us best. He knows us because he's inside of us. And yet he also knows Jesus uh, Sinclair Ferguson says this, the spirit was Jesus' counselor. He bore witness to him. He was with him through every step of his life. He knew him best. We might indeed say the spirit was our Lord's best friend. Isn't that sweet language? The spirit was Jesus' best friend. This was why the Holy Spirit's ministry to us is so significant. He knows Jesus best and he knows us best too. He knows how to teach us about Jesus and what resources to bring to us from Jesus. He is like a bright shining light shining on this aspect, now on that aspect of Jesus's character and ministry, showing us that he is exactly the savior that we need. See, that's the Spirit's work again and again, is to bring us back to the keeping and loving that who is the Savior we need? It's Jesus. That's who we need. That's who we most need. As I sang hymns and songs, and as I listened to preaching this week from Richie Sessions as he preached to our students at Winter Conference, I was reminded myself of the lessons I learned in that same place at Lake Forest Ranch. I know some of you have deep ties to that camp. Well, that's where we uh, gathered our students for, for this Winter Conference. But as a college student in 1998, I remember those, that same place. And I remember hearing some of these same lessons but they strike home just as deeply as they did then. Why? Was it, was it that I wasn't listening closely enough back then? Well, yes and no. It was actually that the Spirit was just working at a different way in my life then. 
And he's working in a new way in my life now. But at every season, at every stage, the message is the same. You need a Savior, and that Savior is Christ. You need a Savior. Everyone in this room needs a Savior. And what the Counselor says to us, what, what our, the Spirit says to us inside of us, in our bones, is he says that, that Savior is Christ. And that Savior not only redeems us, not only saves us by his blood, but further, he makes his home with us. And that's also by his spirit. It says uh, here, uh, already I read in verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He is our homemaker, the Spirit. Uh, he makes our lives ones in which, again, quoting Sinclair Ferguson, he says, um, he says that this is what the Spirit's ministry is like. He not only enables us to feel at home with God, that we're not orphans, but transforms us so that we become men and women about whom the Father might say to the Son, I feel at home there, don't you? I feel at home in her, don't you? I feel at home in his life. Don't you? And it's not as if he's made us perfect. It's not as if, okay, I don't have any more sin. No, that's one of the things we try to help college students see that the process of sanctification is just that. It's a process that will last their entire lives. And yet at the same time, we can say that by the Spirit's work in your life, even though you're not perfect, even though there's sin at times that will grieve the Spirit and grieve the Son and grieve the Father and grieve you, that even that grief is a testimony to the Spirit's work in your life. Of the Spirit saying, hey, something's not right here and we need to change it. But remember, we change it through Christ. Remember, Christ is that Savior who not only saves, but He changes you. And He is making you into something beautiful. He is at work in your life, no matter what season it is. Your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, your 60s, your 70s, your 80s, your 90s. He is at work making you into someone in which the Father says, I feel at home there. And which the Father says to the Son, I feel at home there, don't you? This is the Spirit's work in your life. And as the Spirit does this, as the Spirit brings about this change, as the Spirit works, in, it says in verse 26, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Um, it, it, there are these amazing promises about the, the Spirit's work in your life, but all this is leading towards that peace. And it's that peace that as you look at your life and as you look at the task and as you look at the mission, you remember Christ is my Savior that he is indwelling me by his spirit. I remember years ago, I, was, I love my brother Caleb. When I hear him teach, I always like hearing him speak and I learn a lot from Caleb. And when he was sharing one time afterward, I said, man, thank you so much, Caleb, for what you shared. And he said, that was not me, but that was Christ through me. And it made an impression on me because he didn't just shrug off the compliment. He just said, hey, that was God's grace working through me. And it, it, even that made an impression on me. And as we uh, met together this weekend at Winter Conference, one of the songs we sang, a sort of popular praise song, was, was yet not I, but through Christ in me. And it says this, to this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to him. 
When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. This is our hope. That whatever um, God calls us to in this life, whatever mission that he's sending us out on, that we, we are not our own hope, um, that we are not someone else's hope, um, that it's Christ in us, working by his spirit. Um, I'll, I'll close with this story. It's a story I shared a couple of weeks ago when I was, again, teaching one of my um, lessons through Revelation, which I'm going through with the college students. And one of the things I, I tell the college students as we're going through the book of Revelation is to remember, because if you ever study Revelation, it's very uh, difficult at times. It feels intimidating, some of the word pictures or, or um, language, the metaphors. But I said, remember, this is for a church under attack. The revelation was originally written for people that were suffering greatly and that it was meant to encourage and that whatever you're seeing there isn't meant to discourage you or make you feel just puzzled, but it's actually intended to point to the hope we have in Christ. And so one of the ways I've tried to communicate this idea of, of the revelation and God's word being for us when we're under attack is I've read some stories about martyrs in the past. And this one story of, of a Christian martyr that I came across was from the book Fair Sunshine. And it's, this one story is called The Two Margarets. It's uh, a story of these two Scottish, Mar uh, two Scottish martyrs named Margaret, Margaret McLehan, who was a widow, um, 70 years of age who was sentenced to die by drowning for her faith in Christ and the ways that she would not say what uh, the people at the time in that era were trying to make her say in her prayers. She refused to say the things about the king that the people were saying, the authorities were saying she must say. And there was a young girl who was also sentenced to, to death, uh, Margaret Wilson. She was a farmer's daughter, only 18 years of age. And so a very heavy topic, a very heavy scene here, but they're both taken out. Um, they're, they're tied to stakes. One, the older Margaret, uh, the widow, tied to a stake further down into the, the water where the tide would rise first. And then the younger Margaret was, was tied to a stake further up, uh, closer to the shore or further up on the shore. And it says um, to execute them, the soldiers took them to the banks of this uh, blood and knock burn, which fills uh, the, the soul away from the sea when the, the tide comes up. And the two long wooden stakes had been fixed deeply in the bed of the burn. And the farther out one near the oncoming waves uh, for the older Margaret and then the other one near to the land for the younger one. And the waters came up over the older Margaret and every wave splashing death until she was choking in their cold grasp. I know a very vivid scene. And the soldier said to the young Margaret further up, who's watching this older woman drown before her, they say, what do you think of her now? What do you think of this woman giving her life up? In other words, trying to get the younger Margaret to give up, to recant. And this is what the young Margaret said, 18 years of age. What do I see there? I see Christ wrestling there. Do you think we are sufferers? No, it is Christ in us, for he sends none a warfare at their own charges. He sends none a warfare at their own charges. In other words, this is all Christ in us. And I, Margaret, the older Margaret is gonna bear up and I'm gonna bear up because we are not just sufferers here. We are not just victims. We are actually indwelled by Christ and it's Christ who dwells in us. It's Christ's grace who wrestles through us and he doesn't send us out on our own charges. 
How does he send us? He sends us with peace. He sends us with the peace of which we spoke about, the peace of the Spirit going with us to remind us of the Savior we need, to remind us that we can do it, we can keep the faith, we can keep his commands because we love Christ, because he first loved us. We pray that that would be in our lives as well as it was in this young woman named Margaret. Father, we thank you for the story of John. We thank you for how we are encouraged, how we are reproved and corrected, how some of us hear uh, these words and we are immediately convicted of ways in which we are called to stand strong, in which ways in which we are called to be brave, um, in which ways we need your spirit. We pray that just as the disciples needed your spirit, we would not try to do this alone, but that we remember, remember that we are not orphans and that you have sent your spirit to remind us of the Savior we need. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.